Hi, I'm Linda McGlasson, Managing Editor for Bank Info Security and CU Info Security. Today's Information Security Media Group's podcast is with Shane Sims, a veteran cybersecurity pro. Shane is a director in the Forensic Services Practice at PricewaterhouseCoopers. He is also a former FBI Supervisory Special Agent who specialized in cybercrime, digital evidence, computer exploitation, and network surveillance. Welcome, Shane. Thank you. Glad to be here. What are the types of cyber threat groups out there now, and who are they targeting? Any specific types going after financial institutions? Yeah, the, the cyber threat groups are, are varied, uh, complex, and, and they always seem to be evolving. But um, one common denominator across the groups is that they remain highly motivated. Uh, the threat groups, from my perspective, can be classified as criminals, state sponsors, terrorists, or insiders. Um, the insiders and criminals are the primary threat groups to financial institutions. And I, I can describe each of these threat groups in a little more detail, if that's okay. That would be great. Okay. Um, criminal enterprises are becoming more sophisticated at uh, compromising private cyberspace. Um, you, you know, they're, they're spending time recruiting technical talent they're devoting funds to research and development of malware, and their, their breach operations are planned and organized. And th this threat group's main objective is to convert data into profit primarily. Uh, secondarily, uh, they, they attempt to extort organizations by holding IT assets hostage. I've seen criminal hacker groups uh, actually develop custom malware on the fly while they're in the midst of compromising a target organization. Um, stated differently, as, as they infiltrate an environment and begin to learn what hardware and software is alive and active, um, custom applications are developed to defeat countermeasures employed by those victim organizations. And this type of malware can't be detected by in-house antivirus technology. Um, today's sophisticated hacker crews are using data egress methods that really mirror the well-funded techniques of uh, state sponsors. Ten years ago, traditional organized crime families would hire hackers to steal data for them. Today, hackers and, and hacker groups operate independently of traditional organized crime, and these hacker groups will often team with each other to compromise certain target organizations in order to leverage the skill sets needed based on the target environment. So that's uh, my quick assessment of, of, of the criminal threat group. Uh, moving on to the state-sponsored threat group, um, obviously this is the best funded and most organized and most difficult to detect. Um, foreign intelligence services actively target the U.S. government, its military, and its private sector cyberspace. But the purpose of, of the foreign government cyber threat is to acquire intelligence and steal intellectual property. So they're not a major threat to financial institutions. Terrorist organizations, you know, they, like criminals, they can convert stolen data into financial gain, but you know, 
they, they need identities to permit the movement of terrorist operator, operators around the globe. So um, that's, that's one of their primary focuses of, of a cyber attack. But the most feared objective of this threat group is the disruption or sabotage of, of the cyberspace of any organizations that have been designated as critical infrastructures by uh, DHS. So the, the cyber WMD, if you will, is, is, is the big fear of, of, the, of the terrorist groups. And obviously this type of activity would have serious implications on national security. DHS has designated the banking and financial sector as a critical infrastructure. And, you know, this, this sector has nearly 30,000 financial firms, I believe, is, is the current figure. Yeah. The, the final group that I mentioned was, was the insider threat. And this threat is really multifaceted. Um, traditionally, a discussion of this threat has been human-centric. So you know, a disgruntled employee or contractor, an employee or contractor that's experiencing financial difficulty, or an agent of a foreign government tasked with becoming an employee or contractor. Um, today, you know, the insider threat is just much more complex, though. Uh, poor IT security practices create threats and exploitable opportunities. You know, the interconnectivity of an organization's network to the Internet, vendors, and so forth, um, results in that organization assuming the risk of the poor security practices of those external nodes. Um, but strangely, the, the insider threat with the highest probability of realization is, is the human finger. And as comical as that may sound, it's true. Um, Laptops with encrypted hard drives and secure, secure remote VPN access to private networks are really no match for somebody that clicks on the wrong email attachment or some embedded email link. And when that happens, if there's some malicious intent behind the attachment or the link, you know, that person's computer becomes infected and compromised, and the network it has access to potentially becomes compromised, and then any data obviously within that network could be potentially compromise. Has there been an evolution of attack vectors or targets along with the types of criminal groups attacking networks? That's, that's an inter interesting question, Linda. Um, on one hand, I would say no. Uh, connections to the Internet and corruptible insiders are constant targets. But on the other hand, every time the latest and greatest operating system or COTS application or custom develop application is installed, basically a new attack vector is born. Uh, I think the most significant attack vector of late, which will not likely disappear anytime soon, is the compromise of technology products while in the supply chain. Um, supply chain compromise typically involves installing an undetectable backdoor on your newly purchased router, or firewall, etc., either at the manufacturer, manufacturer, or after it leaves the manufacturer and before it arrives at its destination. You know, organizations today are really starting to think about this this problem, and uh, you know, stepping up their due diligence efforts with all their suppliers. What are some of the specific items that these criminal groups are targeting at financial institutions? Ultimately, they're trying to get at the data, uh, and the data that they really want is payment card industry data and what 
people call personally identifiable information. So basically, identities have a price tag on the black market. And PCI data can quickly be used to counterfeit credit cards and ATM cards. So if somebody can get data that allows them to counterfeit a debit card and they can walk up to an ATM machine and quickly get cash, that's, that's really the, the primary focus. The mindset at most companies, including financial institutions, has been data breaches and attacks happen to other companies, but not here. What would you say to them to make them change their mind? You know, Linda, you're absolutely right. I mean, that that's not an unusual stance. Um, and again, it's it's a stance that uh, doesn't really apply to any specific industry. You see it, you see it everywhere. You know, I could remotely understand that perspective. You know, maybe 10 years ago, but not today. You know, however, the bottom line is that preventative and defensive measures only reduce risk to an acceptable level, as defined by any organization. Um, and, and none of these measures completely eliminate all risk of a breach or insider bad behavior, data loss, or asset sabotage. Of course, the acceptable level of risk, um, risk reduction, is subjective to any given organization and its leadership. So I think it's safe to say that if a breach and or data loss were to happen and become public knowledge, that organization's risk reduction program and the associated budget assigned to it will certainly be scrutinized by customers, stockholders, regulators, etc. Let's say you've been breached. What are some of the before steps that a company should take before a breach happens to prepare for, for a forensic investigation, uh, such as a formation of a cert or any other preventative steps? Yeah, it's not. It's nice if, if somebody has the budget to to form a cert or have some you know in-house investigators and forensic staff. But at a minimum, just having a defined incident response plan that involves notification and deployment of qualified forensic incident responders, you know, whether they're internal or they're leveraged through some you know outside advisor. Um, the, the response plan though should be clear and concise and not a complex attempt to cover every potential scenario. Um, in, in my experience, a lot of organizations that actually have response plans uh, create them in a way that they become so complex and, and so lengthy that no one can even consume them, much less use them. Um, and of course, in my opinion, the best plans are, are always written by people who have experience in these matters. And, you, know, you just can't really afford to operate from a position of, you know, a hypothetical or ac academic position or perspective. And then, you know, just as important as the plan is training on the execution of the plan. And the training, in my opinion, should be provided in two forms at a minimum, a, uh, what, what I would call a walk-through drill and a tabletop exercise. And I can, I can explain both of those if you want. But yeah, a walk-through drill is just where you would get all the participants that would be involved in an incident response into a room, create a breach scenario, and then walk them through and actually tell them what they're supposed to do and what the expectations of them are. And then a tabletop exercise is where you gather all of the incident response players around a table and you walk through a breach scenario and you ask the 
different folks who are required to do certain actions to chime up and you know play the role that they would in the incident response. Shane, what are the things that should not be done after a breach is discovered? And are there any examples that you can give of particularly damaging things that can happen before the forensic team arrives on the scene? The thing I see most, um, and it's, it's completely innocent and unintentional, but the, the most typical action when a breach is discovered is that you know, someone from the victim organization puts hands on the keyboard of a known compromised system for the purpose of investigating and mitigating the situation. And this natural human reaction, unfortunately, can damage digital evidence and call into question the forensic purity of any evidence that's uncovered. Also, because investigating a computer intrusion requires the collection and analysis of digital evidence, the overriding of backup media and system and event logs should be stopped immediately. And, th and this should be clearly articulated in any incident response plan. Shane, what are some of the not widely used cybercrime investigative techniques that one can leverage to improve their organization's proactive security countermeasures? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, two areas come to mind right off the bat. Um, malware analysis from a proactive standpoint and what we at PwC have been calling breach indicator assessments. So a breach indicator assessment ideally would be comprised of two elements, host-based and network-based. And both of these elements are, are more of an art than a science. So unauthorized remote access to systems and the egress of data can be detected by monitoring network traffic if the right and experienced set of eyes are on the job. Typically, unauthorized remote access and data theft involve the installation and execution of malware on systems. So again, the right and experienced set of eyes analyzing certain components of computer systems can identify uh, breaches that haven't been detected by your in-house technology. Now, if the budget's there and you can hire an outside firm to analyze malware you find in the environment, then you're going to have a leg up as well. Uh, typically, what we do is we let the antivirus technology immediately neutralize malware when it's discovered. And then we assume everything's okay. But I think the better approach is when malware is discovered, you preserve it, then you neutralize it, then you analyze it. And often the analysis will uncover intelligence that permits an organization to take actions to further improve its security posture. Finally, Shane, what do you recommend in terms of proactive measures that financial institutions may take to protect themselves, their networks, and their customers from data breaches that aren't even their fault, um, thinking along the lines of Heartland uh, and some of the other more notable data breaches of late? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, you know, I, m I mentioned the, the supply chain problem earlier. Um, so I think and this doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion, but conducting full, I mean, complete, thorough background investigations of your vendors and suppliers or any organizations that might be in the merger acquisition pipeline. I mean, the banking and financial sector relies heavily on uh, a complex supply chain 
that includes providers outside the U.S. So I think this, this important proactive measure can't be underestimated or overlooked. And I would say the same about key personnel that have sensitive access to data, you know, full, complete, thorough background investigations. Another, uh, another item I would, I would mention is uh, conducting security assessments and treating them as an organic program and not a series of one-time events. Thank you, Shane, for your excellent insights that you've shared with us today. My pleasure, Linda. Until later, I'm Linda McGlasson for Information Security Media Group.